across campus, online, and on 12:51 a.m. This, this, this is your student radio station. And a very good afternoon. It's just turned one o'clock, and you're listening to the first insight of um, of a new era here at Raw News. Um, very good afternoon. My name is Cam Hall. I'm the new head of news here at Raw 12:51 a.m. It's fantastic to have your company today. I'm really looking forward to bringing you insight over the coming term. Of course, a lot to live up to from our former head of news, Enoch Bakungu. He's done a fantastic job over the last year. I hope well, I hope by the end of this, the show that you don't end up missing him, that I, I'll be okay for the next year. But a big thank you to everyone who's tuned in today. Really looking forward to have your company. We've got a lot to discuss. But before we get into that, I just wanted to talk about a couple of the other bits of coverage that we do have at the moment here at Raw News. Um, of course, it's the start of term three. So we're currently going out with our Welcome Back Warwick coverage. Um, if you may have just listened on Raw 1251am, we had the news show hour. There's myself and our deputy, Will Kings. We're just talking about some of the big stories from the holiday, including, of course, the tragic passing of His Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh. And as well as that, we had an exclusive interview with Johnny Jenkins speaking to Warwick Students Union President Luke Mepham. That will be going up on our social media. The visual will be going up tonight. So look out for that. A lot certainly came out of the interview. A lot of things that we hadn't heard before that. So really do recommend you checking that out. And then at three o'clock today, I will be sat down with the University Challenge team. Of course, the University Challenge team winning for the first time in two, in 14 years for Warwick. I must say it was a fantastic interview. It was a tense final and really good interview. I really do advise you go check that out. Three o'clock We'll be having the audio on the air. And then, again, it'll be going out later this week across our social media. So make sure you stay tuned in for that. But we have a lot to discuss on Insight today. We're going to be talking about some of the biggest stories that have really been developing over the last few weeks, including all of the stories regarding corruption, sleaze, whatever name that really can be applied to it. Of course, there's been a lot of controversy with regards to lobbying, with regards to allegations of corruption within government, within Westminster. There's a lot we're going to be discussing very shortly. And as well as that, with the big news on climate change targets last week, we're going to be discussing some of the big news on that. What does the change in US climate change targets really mean for global climate change policy? And looking ahead as well to COP26, certainly a lot of press being generated about that. But just how significant is that considering the news in the last week? But firstly, I wanted to bring something a bit different to Insight. I wanted to try something new. And I'm pleased to say that I am joined, firstly, by my deputy head of news, Will Kingswood. A very Hi. good afternoon Hi. to you, Will. Good to be back. Fantastic. It's, it's great to be back. Honestly, I have been, since I got the job five weeks ago, I have been waiting to go, maybe, I wouldn't say sleepless nights, but certainly, you know, thinking in my sleep, you know, how we can get back. I'm really looking forward to doing Insight. And... Well, of course, we're going to be trying something a bit different today, which is something I did on my old show last term. But because the thing is, there's a lot of news in the week that we simply can't cover, especially if you've got five weeks of it to cover. So, Will, I set you the challenge that we're going to try and get all of our deputies to do throughout the coming week of trying to put the news into 60 seconds. So, Will, I'm assuming you're up to the task. Yep, I've got a bit of a list of what has happened in the last seven days, so I'll try and run through it as quickly as possible. 
Well, I am going to be quiet now and I'm going to let you get on with it. So with the news in 60 seconds, here is Will Kingswood. Right, so seven days ago, Keir Starmer was kicked out of a pub by a landlord who accused him of not standing up against the Tory government and just agreeing with them over all these COVID issues. And then a few days later, we had the some good news for once that the uh, Derek Chauvin, the killer of George Floyd, was found guilty on all three charges of his trial, which I don't think many people really expected to happen. I think most people saw the one or two to go through, but not the third one as well. We had the European Super League come and go, lasting not that long at all. And it's very interesting to see how that's had an effect on the wider sporting like table, even over what you would see in within football. Unfortunately, we had the tragic case of the Indonesian submarine that sunk um, off the coast of Bali with a loss of 53 lives. And I mean, there aren't really much worse ways to go. So hopefully they didn't suffer as much. And then finally, we've seen the um, COVID crisis in India really ramp up with their new variant. We've had 350,000 new cases yesterday and experts think that we may even get up to half a million cases by the, in the next few weeks. And then obviously we've had COP26, looking at climate change, a lot of countries bringing in their own targets and we bring it closer to home. We've had Tory corruption with Dyson and Greensill and that is the news in 60 seconds. It's quite a lot, as you can see. I mean, so much has happened over the last few weeks. It's kind of very difficult to sort of quantify it and put it into 60 seconds there. I mean, if you like it, of course, if you're watching or listening to the show right now, of course, we are not just doing the live stream on Facebook. We are as well, of course, on Raw 1251am, 24 hours after the stream airs, as well as on Mixcloud and Spotify. So if you, if you want to get involved and let us know what you think with the show, you know, leave us a question, leave us a comment. We really want to hear your engagement throughout the live stream and what you're thinking of us after. But as you said, obviously, with those news stories, I mean, the story in India last week has obviously been a really, I think, really difficult one. I certainly, the pictures, uh, there, there was one thing to me that really stood out from that which was the patients in the intensive care unit and the journalists that were going in were saying that just because of the fact these hospitals have been so overwhelmed that the patients in the intensive care units have almost been the lucky ones and I think that kind of really puts it into context just how how difficult the situation is in India at the moment. Yeah I mean I think what we've seen in India is what maybe a lot of experts were thinking we'd see throughout the developing world uh, last year. They think we were going to see a crisis in oxygen, people not being able to get the care they needed. And although we've been lucky that we haven't seen that in much of the developing world, we're seeing it now in India and it really puts into perspective that COVID isn't just another flu, that it is really serious, especially if it gets hold in a country that doesn't isn't as equipped to deal with it. Well, absolutely. And of course, we'll continue to see how this situation develops. There are some scientists who are fearing that we're not past the peak yet in India. And that is certainly a very scary situation indeed. Well, Will, it's great to have you here this week as, of course, one of the deputies is going to be working with me over the coming year. Of course, we did the Welcome Back Warwick show where we were talking about many things obviously we're talking about the student issues that were raised from the interview with Luke as well as um, Prince Philip as well but 
One question I don't think I really got much time to ask you was, of course, it's term three. You're a first year as well, and you've had a very unusual year at university. But how are you feeling about term three? Are you looking forward to some hopeful normality? Um, yeah, I think obviously once exams are over, once I've done all my essays, I'm looking forward to the last few weeks of normality and hopefully by once the 21st rolls around and everything's gone, we can really start to see what an, or I can really start to see what a normal Warwick student's life is really like. Absolutely. You have a lot to look forward to. I will say that. Well, thanks, Will, for coming on. Let's now bring in our other guests. And I want to put the same question to them. How excited are they about Term 3? Of course, yes, there's a lot of exams, but also the potential reopening, hopefully coming up later on this term. What do my guests think? Well, let's start off by inviting our chief administrator here at Royal 51 AM. It is our secretary, Josh Gray. Very good afternoon to you, Josh. Hey, Cam. I'm good. Uh, how are you? I'm I'm doing very well, thank you. It's it's, it's nice it's nice to be here. To, you know, start a term. You've got insight back, and yeah, fe feeling nice. But of course, exams to revise for. Mm. I'd rather rather just pretend they're not happening. How are you feeling though about this term? Um, obviously nervous with exams. I mean, like now I'm in second year. It actually counts towards my degree, so it's sort of it's all catching up on me now. Um, but other than that, I'm sort of excited for when they end as well. Uh, just especially with uh, restrictions easing, hopefully. And spend some time with some of my friends and actually get back to what I was experiencing before pandemic even started. Yeah, hopefully. I think that is really what everyone is feeling at the moment. Of course, um, you're now secretary here at Raw. Um, talk to us a little bit. How um how how is that? How are you finding the role? Um, I mean, so far it's pretty much normal. Uh it's just currently at this current stage just sending out the weekly emails and then I'm trying to tinker with um sending out those sort of weekly um, announcements with into other um, social media forms just to make sure that the word gets out more to people that don't use other social media forms. Um, but I know that my job will also ramp up more once we get to events such as Charity Week and if we have it, uh, obviously the Royal Ball or what we had this year with what a Royal Ball year. So there'll be some more stuff to come uh, later on. But right now it's pretty normal. Yeah, certainly a lot for us to be excited about. And indeed, speaking of excitement, um, my predecessor, Enoch, he said to me he was going to give me some space to grow the show, but he, I know he couldn't resist commenting. And I guess a very important word there for me, Enoch, is excited the right word for exam season? I think not. I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. But um, also just one thing as well, if you are, um, we are, I understand, having some issues with the Facebook stream. Um, I'm, I'm trying to rectify them as we go throughout the show. But if you are watching us live right now and you are, are having issues, we are also live on face on youtube and twitter as well so if there's any issues with those streams please feel free to jump on to one of our other runs let's bring on our final guest now um first time on insight an alternative view regular joining us for the first time today it's johnny hoyle very good afternoon to you johnny hi cam it's great to have you on um how are you feeling about this term yeah no i'm i'm, I'm mildly optimistic and there's almost uh, an aspect of excitement for exams uh, I know just question that word, but uh, the normality of having to do exams, I think, is actually quite refreshing in a weird way. I'm, I mean, to be fair, I get that. Like sitting at home, I've certainly found not like I felt like I've been wasting away at times, but like you sort of get into a lull. And even whilst you're at uni, yes, you've got a lot of work to do, but it kind of keeps you going. Whereas I can kind of feel certainly at home at times it's like, you know, do I have to get up? Do I have to do this? Not really feeling it. 
So I, I, I agree. I think that's one of the great things about being back. Of course, Johnny, you um, play hockey. And yeah. you've not really had the opportunity to do that throughout the year. Do you know if you're going to get much opportunities this term? So actually, I've got hockey later today. In um, I, I think, you know, I question whether we'll be able to play any friendlies with other universities. I know there are some plans potentially for sort of intra-squad stuff and, and friendlies, uh, you know, you know, ones versus twos twos versus threes that sort of thing and uh and yeah i'm very hopeful very excited even you know maybe, maybe not in the best shape i've ever been in but um <laughs> i'm sure a few hockey sessions will uh, sort that out i mean the gyms have been closed for was it now three months yeah. and i i don't th- I, i'm not sure you've been able to get onto the field so to be honest i i, I think it's a similar situation for everyone so but I, I think it'll be interesting to see and certainly again having hockey back having these kind of things back i think it's just that normality that people are craving Speaking of normality, of course, once again, Enoch has commented to one of the most normal things of a student experience. Of course, a circle here at Warwick. Will, all I will say, you've got a lot to look forward to, mate. Music. Welcome back to another week of Psychedemics. Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Vinny Show. You are listening to Rockstar. I'm backstage at Casper. We're starting to go. Hello, guys. Hello. There's a team spirit going on behind it. You're all rooting for each other. Oh, yeah. Good job. Yeah. Oh, the idea of popular films being nominated for Oscars. I just think the style that Marvel has made has just put them like way above. Speed. You must get to the mass and stats building using three different modes of transport. Oh my god, there's a trolley. It's really all about like educating, networking, and sharing our stories. I think the SU has a really uh, important role in engaging students with politics. News. Good evening and welcome to the big decision. Ben and Larissa tied. This is your student radio station. This is Raw 1251A. Your student radio station on 1251 AM. Thanks very much to Johnny and to Josh and to Will for coming on the show today. Let's move in now to I guess we were gonna we were gonna go straight into the sleaze allegations, but I wanted to start with this headline in the Daily Mail that's been causing quite a bit of controversy. So a headline was released in the Daily Mail last night from an unnamed source, which stated that the start of the second lockdown, so all the way back to October last year, Boris Johnson said that he would rather let the bodies pile high in their thousands rather than institute another lockdown. Now, this has been um, completely um, debunked by all cabinet ministers have denied that Boris Johnson has said this. Boris Johnson has himself recently come out and denied that he said this. I want to hear what my panelists think of this. Of course, this is an unnamed source at this moment in time. We don't know who has said it. There's no confirmation from Boris or indeed anyone in the top team that he has said it. Of course, they are denying that he has. Um, Josh, let's start off with you. Is this the sort of thing you'd imagine Boris Johnson have having said? And if he did, I mean, what's your reaction to it? Well, I mean, if we're looking at Boris Johnson, the politician, uh, you're looking at a politician in general, you, you'd say, I would never imagine that a politician would even come close to saying such a, such a, such a shocking quote, especially seeing what this country has gone through ever since the pandemic has started. But actually, I think I don't actually see this as unlikely. I mean, if we look into the past of what Boris Johnson was saying when he was just a news reporter, when he was writing news reports, um, 
in his earlier years, he was saying some outward stuff. He was saying like the bottom 20%, they make chavs, they make the losers of this society. He, he does make very emotive statements such as that. And I'm not really too surprised if he has made the statements. If he has made the statement, I wouldn't be too surprised that he has said it, but I would obviously be shocked at the sort of, especially seeing what we've gone through in the past year, that he would be even willing to say such a thing in private. It's a comment that I think people would judge as insensitive. Though, Johnny, perhaps perhaps there may be some form of, perhaps if the comment is in itself maybe quite insensitive, perhaps there may be some sort of rationale that Boris was trying to justify. Of course, there's quite a significant debate in September and October last year with regards to whether we should go into some form of lockdown restriction. Indeed, there is a section, a more libertarian section of the Conservative Party, the COVID Recovery Group, who have been very resistant to these sorts of measures. Of course, the language that they have been using to justify this is not the let the bodies pile high in their thousands. So do you think this perhaps if it was if Boris Johnson did say this, that his this was kind of his way of trying to reflect that, that sort of libertarian position that he says he's always sort of advanced? but maybe not in the most sensitive way of doing so. Yeah, I mean, you don't ever want to say something like that, but, you know, I think it, it I, I don't think he said it, but I think it lent to his image. It's potentially something he, he might have said. Um, and I do think there's a lot of sympathy for that, you know, Republicans, hospitality, even, even students, you know, loads of students have been saying, oh, we'd rather just things were open, you know, being very cynical, uh, saying, you know, we'd rather things were open, you know, a few hundred more, a few thousand more. How does it make any difference? Um, what I would say about sort of the state of, of media at the moment is that, you know, what's the first thing we're taught as university students? It's, you know, to reference correctly, to make sure we reference everything we say. Well, how, how, how are we going to be in society where we're taught that as students, but the media can just rely on uh, unnamed sources? It's, it's, it's very... Uh, fortuitous and and very maybe telling that this is two weeks out from a uh, local big local elections so i think we are seeing an aspect of just you know your bog standard usual electioneering but um you know there's no defending that that sentence used if it has been used but you know all, all the sources at the top have have you know strongly denied it well indeed it's of course important to say as well that the daily mail did release this a paper that's normally quite favorable to the conservatives mm. and to boris johnson um i'm gonna actually will i'm gonna sort of move on to this now this kind of brings us on to our next section because enoch has just commented cough dominic cummings cough and there's been a lot of talk in the last few days really about leaks coming from downing street and dominic cummings starting to speak out about his time within boris johnson's administration now there are some people who blame dominic cummings for the leak of the second lockdown um, at this, all the way back in October that led to the government having to move their press conference forward to announce it. There are some who believe that this leak has come from Dominic Cummings and he's asked to remain anonymous with this. I mean, do you think this has Dominic Cummings written all over it? Um, I think you could probably say it does. I, th I saw a great headline in the Times from one of the columnists who said, that the government has started a petrol fire with an arsonist. And I think that can be more accurate. Dominic Cummings has nothing to lose and he has no great love for the Boris Johnson government after he was fired. So I think if you were to pin this source down to one person initially, I think I would say that it would be the most likely source would be Dominic Cummings. 
But as to whether he's telling the truth or not, that still remains to be seen. Well, it's important to say, yes, the Daily Mail headline did say that people in the room have sworn that Boris Johnson did say this. Cabinet ministers have come out this morning and have said that he didn't. Boris Johnson himself has denied it as well. Well, let's stick now, I guess, stick with Dominic Cummings and kind of move on to our other kind of key story today, which is, of course, over the last few weeks, we've seen a lot of allegations emerge with regard to allegations of sleaze, issues with lobbying and potential corruption um, within Westminster. Of course, the story broke originally with um, David Cameron's link to Greensill Capital, which filed for insolvency in March, but had links to NHS contracts, including a system that was being used to pay NHS staff throughout the pandemic. There was pictures of David Cameron um, going on camping trips in Saudi Arabia with Lex Greensill, rumours of um, drinks with Matt Hancock, as well as messages to Rishi Sunak. We've seen a lot develop over the last few weeks. And indeed, there's there's just a long list of things, including texts between Boris Johnson and James Dyson that came out last week. But now, over the weekend, what we've seen is Dominic Cummings start to come out and almost not necessarily give a tell-all of his time in Downing Street, but certainly the, the flame of potential allegations of malpractice particularly regarding renovations to the private flat in Downing Street, which has been alleged to have done with taxpayers' money. Boris Johnson has said himself that he paid for it out of his own pocket, although is not 100% denying whether that money may have come from a Conservative Party donor. There's a lot for us to unpack there. So, Josh, I wanted to come to you first, actually, because whilst we were off air, you said to me you took kind of quite particular concern to why this is being discussed as sleaze. Talk, talk to me a bit more about that. Yeah, so um, I'm currently studying uh, one of my modules. I'm looking at corruption in Britain and its empire from 1600 to 1850. And throughout that whole module, we never really reference the term as sleaze. Sleaze is more of a modern term that we use from sort of major government on, from the 1990 onwards to talk about underhanded um, actions taken by politicians in high ranking uh, offices. And so when I hear the term sleaze being used, I think it's the totally incorrect word to be using. And it's more of a watering down of what we're seeing. I think either it is corruption or it's not. And that's how you should really be determining it. Sleaze is just a sort of middle term that sort of brings about plausible deniability in both cases. Well, absolutely. And of course, sleaze has a lot of historical context um, linked to, obviously, as you said, the major government and a lot of allegations with things like cash for questions, which was something that really dogged the Conservative Party's reputation then. And I guess, Johnny, looking at what has been coming out in the last few weeks, a lot of it has been linked to the Conservative government figures within it, particularly, obviously, David Cameron originally, but increasingly figures within the current government, particularly Rishi Sunak, Matt Hancock, and now Boris Johnson himself getting implicated. So I guess my first question to you here is how significant an issue do you think this is for the government? Well, I don't think it's it, it's too bad. Um, I, I would also again say it's it's an election season, so it's actually again very clearly electioneering, um, opposition research, whatever, whatever. Um, what I would say is that there's often like two schools of thought of, of how uh, lobbying can be done. Do we want a centralised system where it might take weeks to go through the relevant channels to to you know to get things get things done or do we actually want a system where a billionaire can text the prime minister and say i'd really quickly and efficiently like to make you ventilators to save lives mm -hmm. i think often 
there have been cases that undoubtedly with the, with the Tory party under John Major, et cetera, et cetera, when actually we, we have seen sleaze and corruption. But I think actually we belittle it if we compare trying to build ventilators to save lives, if we compare that to, you know, informal corrupt lobbying. I think there's far worse. And I think if we're going to, you know, start getting getting angry at billionaires for, for trying to build life-saving equipment, then I, I don't think we're going to get very far as a society. It's interesting you mentioned that you kind of see this as an act of electioneering, because obviously, again, the government have been very clear. Boris Johnson has said exactly what you said there, that, you know, he's not going to apologise for doing what he needs to do to have got in the ventilators in the procurement last year. But there's been a lot of controversy we've seen emerging over the last year with regards to um, what the Labour Party have termed as the sort of chumocracy within the Conservative Party, where friends and donors of Conservative MPs and Lords have been the ones getting the contracts that the competitive tendering processes that are central to most contracts have gone. So do you think perhaps that this kind of fits into that wider issue that has emerged over the last year, rather than just perhaps, as you suggested, a sort of active electioneering? Um, Yes and no, because I think often we find if the shield's on the other foot and the Labour government in, in power, huge amounts of their money come from um, from unions. And a lot of that is undisclosed. So, you know, I, I don't think one's better than the other. I think at the end of the day, we've had a once in a century uh, pandemic, a, an event which has, you know, destroyed huge swathes of our civilization, our society. You know, what, what we previously thought as, as normal has been just, you know, stolen from us. Um, I, I do question whether this is not just a aspect of government, whether lobbying and, uh, and you know, taking considerations from your donors is, is actually just part of government and whether you have a Labour government in power, a Conservative government in power, a coalition government in power, there always will be these sort of things arising. I don't think it's necessarily that startling or shocking. Okay, well, th- let's perhaps talk about lobbying a bit more in general now, because, again, the big sort of story that has emerged over the last, you know, I guess, intensified in recent weeks is it's not necessarily the contracts themselves, but it's who's getting the contracts and how they're getting the contracts and whether they are the best people to be getting that contracts. I mean, Will, if you we talk about obviously the things like Johnny said, lobbying itself isn't necessarily a bad thing, but is it this particular type of lobbying that we're seeing the sort of the chumocracy as it's been termed by figures within the Labour Party is that really the the source of the problem here? I think probably just because if you're only giving contracts to your friends, you're eliminating an entire entirely different other firms that could provide a better service. I do think I don't think that lobbying I, it might be an issue, but it's always going to be a part of politics. We see it in America, we see it here, we see it everywhere, essentially. But I think that it's made, it is the sort of democracy that's having the issues, because if you're just giving it to your friends, then it excludes everyone else. And that's not entirely fair, to be honest. Well, I think that's certainly that point of fairness is interesting. And I mean, we saw it with the vaccine programme. For example, a lot of people criticised Kate Bingham's appointment at the time. Um, as an example of that chumocracy, of course, a few months down the line, she's been credited as one of the central parts of the UK's vaccine success 
I mean, Josh, if we, we look at the lobbying culture more generally, one of the things that people have said over the last year is that there's a real lack of transparency coming from within government and that things, for example, like the James Dyson text, where we have, again, James Dyson obviously offering to produce um, ventilators, but at the same time seeking some form of tax incentive to be able to make it easier, as he would say. So do you think that that how do you think that we can reform lobbying in a way so it can be more transparent so that something like James Dyson's request could not be judged as corruption? Or do you think something like James Dyson was asking for was inherently corrupt? Well, from what I understand is that James Dyson, obviously, um, I think what was brought up with the idea that, you know, Boris Johnson's defence of what he had done was that we are getting ventilators out, we're getting ventilators out. I'm doing something that's life-saving. But the, pro the part of the problem with what this, is, this issue has risen is that did it really need to take a tax cut to one business just to get ventilators out when there are so many other businesses who aren't as connected to the Tory party who could have done just as good, if not a better job, with producing ventilators and wouldn't need to ask for such a request. Um, and I think that, that sort of example in the democracy that we're talking about, it shows that we do need some form of reform to the lobbying system, in my opinion. And how we come how we go about doing that, in my opinion, is what you talked about earlier. We need a more centralized system, which yes, admittedly, there will always be pros and cons to a system. The con you brought up brilliantly, there was the idea that there will be a slower process uh, when it comes to lobbying, that it will take longer for things to get done. But the problem is, is that the reason why it takes longer with these things, because you need to evaluate whether giving out a contract to a certain um, to a certain private business or contract to anything or anyone, it needs to be well evaluated to ensure that it's getting the best value for money for the taxpayer. And that's what we should be thinking about first and foremost, is our, is our tax money being used correctly and efficiently? And if it's being done by doing underhanded informal conversations, which is giving it to your best friend, then that's a major problem. Well, of course, we're going to see how this develops over the next few weeks. And of course, we still don't know what more there is to come. But what it seems may be coming out very soon is um, more from Dominic Cummings. Now, we know Dominic Cummings is going to speak to um, the Science and Technology Committee that has been very much convening over coronavirus I believe on May the 26th, I believe that he's due to appear before that committee. We know that the head of the civil service, Sir Simon Case, is appearing before the committee today and questions on this will undoubtedly come up. I guess in terms of now, if we talk about reforms and we talk as well about potentially who could get implicated here. Johnny, if, if the issue itself is not necessarily one of the Conservative Party per se, but we have heard that there have been civil servants who have been criticised, for example, for taking up second jobs. Who ultimately do you think has the most to lose here? Do you think it's the government or do you think it's going to be a much more cultural-wide issue within Westminster? Um, I would say the implications are possibly quite damning for a government. Uh, and even if, you know, even if it has an effect on the local elections by four or five percent, that that could have huge impl uh, huge implications for local government, the devolved administrations. Um, what I what I would say is, you know, I, I wholeheartedly agree that having transparency and openness when it comes to lobbying is, is crucial and, it, and it's very important. What I would perhaps add, though, is that any sort of um, discussion about uh, sleaze when it comes to PPE procurement contracts or ventilators. I, I think, our, you know, it's not necessarily 
correct to say they're excusable because we obviously we don't want corruption. We don't want, you know, um, quid pro quotes. But what I would say is during a pandemic, I think the government have a line of argument where they're not going to apologise for wasting money. Because actually, if you looked at, you know, all the, all the grants, all the loans, uh, furlough, all the benefit that had, no one's going to say that there's not been any cases of fraud or any taxpayers' money being wasted. So I, I think it, it's weird to say, but it's almost excusable given the last year, year and a half we've had. Okay, Will, let's end off this section with you very quickly then. Do you agree with Johnny that perhaps, yes, there's been all of these concerns, obviously, the with the stuff that's obviously come out with um, David Cameron and Greensill, for example, the ventilator procurement, but do you think perhaps given the circumstances in the last year, as Johnny said, that this is something that is excusable? And how much do you think this will eventually impact upon the government? Um, I do think that the government will use a line that it's excusable. And I do think that that line will ultimately get them out of this issue. I think the fact it was a pandemic means that normal procedures do tend to go out of the window. And I think if you're comparing like the Dyson thing with uh, David Cameron's green sill, it's David Cameron who looks a lot more bad because there was no like extenuating circumstances of a pandemic. This was back when life was relatively normal. So I think that the government will be fine with the contracts, even though it obviously does still really raise questions about how lobbying works within Westminster. Well, certainly. And Enoch has, again, commented his opinion. If it has wider cross-party implications in terms of structural changes, the optics problem will reside with the government. Look at the expenses scandal and how it damaged Labour. Of course, again, the expenses scandal really was an issue that affected cross-party MPs. My member of Parliament, Conservative, at the time was the argument was the one. I think he was the Duck House MP with which many of the expenses scandal is is associated with. But again, even as conservative, it what whilst he again whilst he was a conservative, many of the issues did as Enoch say obviously implicate the Labour Party. It was an issue at that election. Of course, arguably you could say this is the biggest kind of scandal of that kind since the expenses scandal. So it will be interesting to see how this develops. Of course, this won't be the last we hear of that issue. Looking for a bite to eat at the Warwick SU? Daily specials and fine dining experience at the brand new Canopy. Karaoke, pub grub and lager on tap at the Dirty Duck. Salad and sarnies to go in the bread oven or a latte link up at Curiosity. There's something to suit any taste and any budget. And if you've got a big night ahead of the copper room, start it right at T-Bar. With speciality cocktails. Best stock prices. And our expertly stocked bar overlooking the piazza. At Warwick SU Outlets, there's something to satisfy every taste. Your breakfast, the feel-good way to start your day. This is Breakfast Radio for Warwick students, by Warwick students. Playing the feel-good hits and brightening up your morning. Plus, we have the best gaps, games and giveaways to freshen up your stagecoach commute. Listen to Raw Breakfast every day from 8am. Your student radio station on 12.51am. This is your Raw. Let's move on now to our last topic today. And last week we saw um, quite a bold move from the US government. Of course, the US government over the last few years under the Trump administration were criticised for a sort for an approach to climate change that was seen to not necessarily deal with the immediacy 
of the problem. Um, Joe Biden came in and he made climate change a significant priority of his government. Indeed, he appointed John Kerry, the former Secretary of State, as his climate envoy, really seen by many as a move to give gravitas to that. And last week, we saw ahead of an Earth Day summit that the US had committed to significant reductions in their carbon emissions, 50% less emissions than 2005. Now, there's a lot of negotiations, of course, taking place before the COP26 summit in Glasgow, which is intended to take place in person in Glasgow. There's still some questions as to whether the format for that may be changed. But let's, let's start off by talking about these US targets first. Will, do you think that the targets announced by the US last week go far enough towards tackling climate change? Um, I think it's obviously really hard to say because if they do hit their targets, then you're going to turn towards countries that aren't reducing their emissions like China and India. And even if the Americans do manage to hit their targets, then if China have increased their emissions by the same amount, then it will have a really negative effect. We, I think we need to get the entire world on board. And at the moment, it doesn't look like that's occurring. Well, indeed, there was certainly we had the summit last week where loads of leaders from the world went on to talk about obviously the climate issues and many of their targets. But there wasn't apart from the US didn't seem, Josh, like there were many substantial new targets set or anything really substantial that emerged from any of the discussions that were taking place. Yeah, that's the sort of idea I got from it. Um, I'm, I've seen some news sources say that this is probably one of the most important meetings in climate change uh, discussions, because I think they say if, if this fail, if this talk doesn't get the results, we need the sort of targets that we need going forward, then we could then we could say that the climate change emergency is unsolvable. So this is a very important time, in, in my opinion, especially, uh, well, not especially in my opinion, but in my opinion, I think COP26 uh, is one of the most important meetings that we're going to have, because I, a lot of people are describing it as the most important meeting since the Paris Climate Agreements. But the fact that we're seeing that not too many changes are being made, and I think one, one of those is that we are being, I think we're being too lenient with uh, China's um, coal consumption, particularly, and seeing that we're not really budging on that to try and push China to at least, you know, start making reductions now is a, a cause of concern as brought up by, by Will. Even if the USA reach their targets, China's current targets say that they'll, it could just uh, even it out. Well, that, let's stick with that sort of line of argument specifically now, because there's been a lot of talk in recent weeks about just the significance of COP26. Of course, Josh, you said it's the most important meeting, in your opinion, since Paris. But there has been an, a sort of increased orthodoxy amongst many political commentators that actually the significance of COP is sort of just a side, it is it, in many ways just a sideshow for more important bilateral negotiations between the US and China, of course, the two biggest carbon polluters in the world. And that what happens at COP really isn't as significant as what happens in these talks. I mean, Johnny, is that an opinion that you would agree with? Uh, yeah, yeah, to a degree. If, if we look at the Paris Climate Accord, uh, it's very interesting to note that um, obviously President Trump, former President Trump, pulled out of this accord, uh, yet still uh, carbon emissions fell in the USA. And in 2019, carbon emissions were at their lowest since 1950. So actually, that's, that's quite interesting where we see the case of uh, a president pulling out of the uh, Paris Climate Accord and carbon emissions continuing to fall, whereas um, China, a signator 
of the Paris Climate Accord is increasing their coal-powered uh, plants, their coal productions, their carbon emissions, and nothing kicks in until 2030. Uh, and, and I would predict that that's quite a, a loose deadline. Um, and I think the danger is we're making such a good effort in the UK, the USA, and the Western world to cut carbon emissions. But all it's going to do, unfortunately, is push manufacturing jobs and, uh, and a more of a dependency on these rapidly industrializing, growing countries of the world, such as China, uh, Pakistan, India, where actually it's going to increase the carbon emissions in these countries. So COP is so crucial to find a sustainable way, which actually challenges every single player of the world. Because at the moment, it's just it, 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 it's not going the way we want. And we can keep making these pledges over and over, again, over, and over again, and every five years uh, make a new pledge. But if we're not seeing the worldwide change, then I'm afraid uh, things aren't going to improve. Well, Josh, let me come back to you on Johnny's point. But just very quickly, Enoch has just um, commented again on Johnny's point. Um, very good point, Enoch says. In terms of climate change, the actions of individual states matter more than the federal response. So I guess very much in reaction to what Enoch said there, is it that COP is just a sideshow that ultimately, do you think COP can actually achieve the change that is needed? Or is it going to be in these negotiations, particularly with China, away from COP? I think that's a good question in terms of what we're looking at. It's obviously working the individual states. It really matters what the individual states do. I fully agree with that statement. Like what the individual states do after these meetings is important. But these sorts of meetings, I think, are also important in that it brings together these nations in one way to have this debate over, yes, as as was brought up, yes, making just statements of these are our targets, we're going to reduce this much, you know, CO2 emissions by this much, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But it needs, it would set, a, in my opinion, it, it, the way that COP26 would be made to be important is if we truly make sure that this is something that states hold themselves to. A bit like with the Paris Climate Accords, we need to make sure that countries adhere to what has been already agreed upon. I mean, obviously, we talked about how there is some imbalance and that some nations are more industrial are industrializing and some nations aren't and are reducing their CO2 output. So it seems there's an imbalance. I think COP26 can be a good point of reference to be able to review what we've done so far, see if people are following what they have promised, and from that make make new adjustments to that to ensure that especially as we're bringing up we bring up the case of china i'd say in my personal opinion we should make certain changes to what they're doing to ensure that they're cutting their emissions as soon as possible but i think the issue with that is that with a we're coming from an opinion of a country that has already gone past industrialization china is in a situation where its reliance on coal is very much needed for such a large nation and it's sort of I, I understand the point of we need to reduce emissions, but China is in a slightly different situation to the US and the UK and is a highly industrialized nation and relies on this. So we can't be using a one for all sort of systems. But I think COP26 can be really important in that sense of ensuring can we get a better deal that ensures that China reduces its coal emission, CO2 emissions at a sooner rate? Well, I think certainly... I think the immediacy, the importance of the issue of climate change, I think we've all kind of drawn upon. There's just one more, I guess, opinion. I wanted to put this to Will because a lot of people have been saying that Boris Johnson has put this real emphasis upon climate change or almost uh, his real turn on climate change policy 
within the government. Now, there are some that say this may have come from his fiance Carrie Simmons, but there are some that are also saying that Boris Johnson's emphasis upon COP26 is not just about climate change, but it's about securing a significant diplomatic coup for himself, about bringing countries to the UK and really trying to almost reinforce post-Brexit global Britain. Now, given the discussions we've had that, of course, this COP may not be the place where we have these big negotiations taking place, that it may almost just be a rubber stamp for them. Do you, do you think that for Boris Johnson, COP is as much a diplomatic coup as it is a real significant step towards new climate change targets? Um, I think, yeah, probably, because obviously Boris Johnson wants to pull out the Global Britain message after we've left the EU. But I don't think that if it is, it's really a bad thing. Because ultimately, climate change is arguably the biggest threat to the world globally. Because, I mean, it affects everyone. Not maybe not equally, but it does affect everyone. So even if the government is using COP as a way to drive all global Britain, if it goes well, then it will have good implications for the rest of the world, regardless of how good it looks for Britain. Of course, I mean, we haven't heard um, exactly what the plans are for COP. There are rumours it still could be moved online. There are rumours that it may be further delayed if it is moved online. But it's clear that there is a real global emphasis on new climate change measures. So we'll wait to see really what happens over the next six months. Of course, in November, as part of my tenure as head of news, I do get to cover COP26, hopefully, if it does take place and it's not moved online and all of the things I've just said happen. But let's see what happens over the next few months. And all I can say now is that is it for the first insight of this term. Thank you so much to everyone who has tuned in. It's been fantastic to have your company over the last hour. I hope you've enjoyed the discussions and I hope you enjoy, hopefully some of the new things that we're going to be doing with Insight next year. Again, get involved, comment on our videos, like and share them as well and check out all of our other coverage from Real News as well, including our Welcome Back Warwick coverage, including Johnny Jenkins' interview with Luke Mepham and my interview with the University Challenge team, which is airing in just over an hour's time on Royal 1251am and will also be on our Mixcloud and Spotify accounts. Until then, thank you very much for watching and listening to Insight this week. I hope to see you again next week. Across campus, online and on 1251am, this, this, this is your student radio station.